0: Welcome to Getting to Fifty-Fifty, brought to you by Pratima Rao Gluckman. Each episode, we bring a thought leader who discusses the changes we can all make to help bridge the gender gap at the very top. Today, we have around 5% of women running Fortune 500 companies. How can we get to 50% so that we have diversity of thought and opinion that is so critical to the success of organizations and humanity in general?
1: This episode was recorded in 2019. Welcome to Getting to 5050 podcast. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of having Laboran Myers on the podcast. She's a connector and innovative business development executive and a proponent of raising a collective emotional intelligence to best solve today's greatest challenges. As president and chief business officer of Not Me, she's passionate about creating and sharing practical, scalable solutions that protect and empower employees and employers to safely and justly do their best work. Laboren's diverse background includes seven years in the corporate world of investment management, a year on the radio as a morning show host, a six-month sabbatical studying yoga in Southeast Asia, and eight years in the startup landscape of digital media and tech. Welcome, Laboren.
0: Thank you, Pratima. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
1: I wanted to first start with my f- question about your story. Do you want to talk to me a little bit about your story, how you were raised, how you were encouraged by your parents, teachers, professors, whoever may be, and how you got to where
0: you are today? Sure. Um, that could be a very long answer, or <laughs> I will, I'll, I'll just start chatting and see which way it goes. Um, I, I was raised all over the U.S., Um, my father coached college and professional football while I was growing up. And that is a very exciting profession when the team he's coaching is winning. Um, but it's a challenging one when they're not, because it's a very, uh, quick fire cycle. They, they, they will fire coaches after one or two losing seasons. And so kindergarten through 12th grade, I was in nine schools. So I was always the new kid and I grew up around, sports and athletes, male athletes, uh, cause he coached football and, um, yeah. And I came from a big family on my mom's side. So I was always, I was just used to being kind of the new girl. I went to UCLA. I studied communications. I thought I was going to be a sports broadcaster. And when I got out, I got an interesting opportunity. I was, um, I, to work in investment management. And to be honest, I didn't I didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond at the time. Um, But I was always open to being kind of the new kid and learning new things. And I'd never lived in New York City. I accepted the role before I'd even ever visited there. And to get into that at such a young age, um, I didn't realize how lucky I was to have that opportunity, number one. But I really looked at it as as if I was getting paid to go to business school. So when I got into that, I was... um, I was given a, a pretty great opportunity pretty early and I quickly realized I was one of the very few females in the industry and one of the youngest um, and that in an industry with a ton of money. So that as you can imagine, I saw a lot of things. I was I was I witnessed things I was a recipient of things and for the most part I'm just grateful for the opportunity I got when I was younger but, but it was my first, job out of college. So I didn't even realize how male dominated it was only because it's all I had seen. So I started investment management and that was, I did that for about eight years. Then I, um, took a break and I became a morning show host on the radio in San Francisco for a year. It was something unplanned. It was very cool. Um, I was the only female on the morning show. There was four of us. And then I took a year and went and studied, yoga and meditation in India and Southeast Asia, and really kind of took some time to to go within and figure out um, what moved me. I think I'd seen a lot of things externally that were important in the world, but I wasn't really clear on on myself exactly what would be inspiring and fulfilling. So that was a critical year for me. And when I came back, I joined a um, digital media startup called Urban Daddy. And we were, you know, less than 20 people in one room. And I ended up, I thought I was gonna be there for three to six months. I ended up there for eight years and grew to be the chief business development officer um, and the only female in the C-suite there. And then I had my daughter, got married and had my daughter uh, about a little over two years ago and everything switched. It didn't switch. It just a whole new lens opened for me. I think once I, you have children um, and you look at the world, not just through what your life's going to be like, but what you're going to be leaving for the next generation and what it's going to be like for them. And more importantly, I think roles before that, they could satisfy me, you know, if it was to make money, if it was to try something new, I just felt like I was excited about everything before I had, uh, my little girl. And then after that, it needed to be much more important and compelling in order for me to be away from her. I wanted to work. I loved business, but I wanted to say goodbye to her in the morning and go do something that was meaningful. And so the first year that she was born, I was, I had planned to take that year with her. And the second year I, I was consulting and I thought, I don't know, I, I thought I would know more clearly exactly what I wanted to do, but I was finding that I was meeting either people that I liked, but wasn't so as, as excited about their product or I'd find great products, but didn't love the team. And then actually, and you don't know this, Pratima, how you and I met the, was at the Women in Tech event that was held in Santa Cruz. And I introduced you, you are a keynote speaker and did an awesome job. And then you and I (laughs) sat on the panel that evening Mm -hmm. uh, with Guy Kawasaki and his wife uh, moderated the panel and we talked about what it was to be a woman in tech and, And my angle was a little bit different. Obviously, you have been a woman in tech specifically for your career, whereas I've been a woman in various industries that were male dominated. And that most recent one being, you know, Urban Daddy was very much media and tech. And from that conversation, what happened that night was that someone approached me after the conversation. And he had sat and listened to our panel and said he wanted to have coffee the next morning. I met him and began consulting. Uh, for the last six months and then ended up joining full time. Uh, And it's called Not Me Solutions. And what it is, is a practical response to what we've seen with the Me Too movement. So Me Too inspired Not Me Solutions. And Not Me Solutions is, it's all about making reporting misconduct as easy as possible. So it's the first mobile solution for reporting misconduct that makes it as simple as can be for employees everywhere to do anonymously or not as a witness or if it happened to them. And then on the flip side, to really bridge this and work with employers to bring them a dashboard that uh, brings together, centralizes, organizes, and prioritizes all of this information so they can actually do something with it, know what's happening in their organization much earlier. Because I feel like we're at this place right now in our, in our world where often things aren't reported until they're so egregious and so late. And so awful things are happening to people and, um, and companies are, you know, taking down entire brand reputations, all of these things, cause we're not, we're not looking at things early enough. So what I loved about this is it really, it brought a practical solution to some of what we're seeing and it brings humanity and technology together in a way that I think is exciting and important. So that's where I am now
1: it's very cool. I do remember the Not Me uh, group that was there because they did also talk to me and, you know, we had a couple of conversations. So that's very cool. Congratulations. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. Thank you. It's, it's, it's pretty exciting times for, um, for what's happening in the world. I just, I, I think the Me Too movement is, is highlighting a lot of things and that's what you know, I think there's a huge focus on harassment, as there should be, but it really gives the opportunity to shed light on all issues of workplace misconduct and unfairness, discrimination, bullying, and harassment. I mean, these have been going on for as long as business has been happening. And so um, there just needs to be a new way to address it.
1: Yes, definitely. And, you know, this is becoming a systemic problem. It's always been a systemic problem. It's just that it's coming to light now. And there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of uh, women are basically saying enough is enough.
0: I think women and I think the next gen, yeah, women, men and the next generation. I think Mm -hmm. every generation has different, um, different areas of tolerance and intolerance. And I think the You know, people complain often about this is since the beginning of time. People will complain about the next generation, you know. But there's amazing things coming out of the next generation. They're they're not accepting the status quo of what has been. And so these big-time employers who had all the power are now needing to bring in the best talent from these millennials. And the millennials are saying, This is not okay. This is not okay. What has always been is not okay. And so I feel like the the companies are needing to respond and do something different. Um, And yes, women are speaking up and speaking out. And like you said, men, men are, there's a lot of incredible male advocates out there. Um, Plenty who were very helpful and responsible for a lot of my opportunities in my career who, who are also on the same, on our side, right? Our side being anyone who believes that everyone should have a seat at the table, their fans based on their talent.
1: Right. And I kind of wanted to jump into a couple of things that you talked about. One was, uh, you know, during my conversation with Guy, Kasa- Guy Kawasaki on this episode, he actually said, you know, all the things that we're talking about, like getting to 50-50, it's just not a tech problem. <laughs> and you wow. confirm that because your experience has been varied, you know, from, you know, a glamorous morning show host. I find that glamorous because I work in tech and it's you know, it's not as glamorous as media and and all that. It's just not a tech problem. And I've noticed that as well, because my book was so focused on tech, because that's my world. But after that, I realized it's, uh, you know, I, I spoke to a bunch of lawyers. I spoke to the Federal Reserve. I spoke to a lot of non-tech companies that invited me to come and speak because they resonated with all the issues I talked about in the book. Which yeah, I, I definitely think is... don't think
0: it's just a, a tech issue. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, but I do think that there are, um, when it starts very young in terms of in, in which direction girls might be, you know, encouraged to, to spend their time or to choose a major. So I, I do think that some, some professions are even more challenging because it's fairly new that women are showing up in those professions. Right. So I think all the STEM programs that are going on in schools are fantastic. And I think just the, I mean, look, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly new mom. I have a, a young daughter, but you know, when I read books growing up, I didn't stop to question the fact that it was always like a princess and a guy saving her. You just read books, you know? And so now even that there's this new era of, of, what people are writing about to make it more conscious early on in little girls and little boys minds about what people can do and what they can, you know, whatever they want to do and taking away from some of the traditional roles. But that's still the minority of the stories. You still feel a lot of the, of the same traditional roles, um, that we're seeing, but, but there's an opportunity at every age, you know, to, to just kind of, call into question what has always been, not to make that bad, but to open it up to, yeah, but does it have to be that way? And can it be different?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did that recently. My daughter loves soccer, but she had a terrible experience last year. The boys would push her, never give her a chance. They were very rough and the coaches weren't doing anything. And she basically hated going to soccer. So, you know, I called out the coach, the head coach. And I said, you need to fix this because you're not going to get a lot of girls enrolling in your classes if you don't uh, either get an all girls soccer team or try to fix the issues where you can either teach the boys to uh, allow like make it fair right like not just have one kid like running around you know always kicking the ball or whatever right like they are still kids they are like 5 years old and they already see so much bias on the field at that age and she's basically like I don't like to play with the boys they're very mean and aggressive and i don't want her to feel that way i want her to not feel and have those things in her head about boys like at that that young age and you know when i look back at my life i went to an all girls school and i've noticed that a lot of the a lot of my friends who were with me in that school they just have this attitude you know they you know it's like we're almost we never i don't know we just grew up thinking we could kick ass
0: Hmm.
1: And it, was it because we weren't exposed to boys at a young age? I don't know. Like, I'm still figuring out, like, what's best for my daughter? Should she be, go to an all-girls school where she can grow up like me, be unaware, kick ass, whatever? Or should she go through, you know, just this hard life of being with the boys, getting discriminated against? And all those things, I don't know, I'm,
0: I'm struggling. I know, I think there's many paths. I went to an all girls high school for two years and then a co-ed high school for two years. So I had both. Um, and I will say that, you know, look, when there's all girls, you're not, you're not behind. You're not, you're not going for vice president instead of president because the guy's the president. Every, you know, a woman mm-hmm. holds every role. And when it comes to exactly. sports, you're not taking the time that, you know, well, let's see, let's work around the boys schedule. Right. I did see that in high school, when I was at the co-ed, we would work on the boys' schedule. Uh, the girls' team would work on the boys' schedule, whereas at the all-girls, we were it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I see the good to, to both, right? When you're talking about an all-girls team or co-ed. And I know, like, playing basketball, I that was my sport. And I loved playing with the boys. It's where I got really good. And, this, and it gets a little, it's a little bit different when you start to talk about the physical versus the mental Olympics of of workplace stuff, right? But but it's funny you bring this up because this is part of, um, of why I think even what we're doing right now at, at, at Not Me Solutions with the workplace, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it is because I said, you know, growing up, the, the place for me that people's un, like, unconscious biases were like raised was often in places like um, sports teams because you had a very common goal. You had to work together, no matter if you were different religions, different races, different anything. You didn't care. You wanted to win that game. So that for me was sports. I know for somebody else, it might be like they played an instrument in the orchestra and they didn't care who. You just needed the drums to be right. You just needed the clarinets to be right. Whatever that was growing up. But when you get to be an adult, we can pretty much choose now, you know, often, not everyone. Obviously, that's a privileged choice to choose where you live. But let's say you are of that privilege where you can choose. You can choose to live in a neighborhood where everyone is like you, or you can choose to live in a neighborhood that doesn't see certain things that you want to pretend aren't happening in this world In many parts. Right. And, and that's look, that's okay. I'm not going to judge that. But one of the few places to me that needs to remain safe and sacred is the workplace. Cause it takes you back to like, what happened with sports. In sports, you had different people coming together, putting aside their biases to realize we have one common goal. And now you have a similar thing as an adult in the workplace. I mean, you look at the companies that have, you know, created the most amazing things and accomplished the most amazing things. They are pulling talent from all different types of people and places. Now, yes, women are still being underrepresented there, but there's still a lot of different types of backgrounds and things coming Together and so, keeping that sacred, like making sure that you're making that a safe place to bring all the best talent, so you can get the best things out of that, is is super important to me. And it does. It's it mirrors to me what what I used to have as a child in sports when I would be just reminded that we the more important thing is what we have in common, not what we're different.
1: You know, that's a great point. As you were talking about it, I was thinking, yes, in sports, the common goal is to win. You Mm -hmm. know, there's a winner and a loser. But in the workplace, that's not really the case. I mean, not everyone working at a company is wanting to win. People have different agendas. People are there to promote their careers. It's not all about the business. There's lots of politics. There's a lot of, uh, you know, throwing people under the bus. There's a lot of that going on, right? So it's much, much harder. I can see in um, in a sports arena, you know, there's that motivation. Uh, I'm sure it's political as well uh, in, in some of that. I mean, my sister played cricket for the country, and I know she struggled with a lot of the politics that went in that system and organization. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. I, I can see that. I There's this one goal to win, mm-hmm. and they'll do it, and they'll put aside their biases. But I wish it was like that in the workplace. I don't feel like everyone's there to win. No. Or everyone's there for the business and that's their only goal. I wish it was like that. Then it would be, you know, we wouldn't be talking about unconscious bias. You just want the best people to be there. But people are motivated by different things in, uh, in businesses. And they are. most of them are not right. Some of them are not the right uh, intention.
0: And some of them are are unconscious. I mean, I, I really do think that we have such a spectrum of people. I think, look, you have some people let's like, we all know we've seen many uncovered and highlighted in the news as of late who, you know, are at the end of the spectrum where they are conscious power abusers. They know what they're doing. They're doing it for their own good. They know other people are being hurt because of it. And they're okay with that. Obviously those people need to be uprooted. And I do feel like it's happening more and more right but you have this really big spectrum below that of i think people who are doing it in this unconscious biased way who are not bad people who do not even realize where their blind spots or their biases lie and it's now it's about how how do we actually bring this to the forefront i mean things like the me too movement and things like um this podcast and the book you wrote and that is helping people just to like boom raise their awareness a little bit but i i i do think that it's really important that when we're talking about it sometimes we'll group kind of the everybody of anybody who's ever um been a part of the problem and i think there's a difference there are people who are consciously part of the problem and then there are people who don't even realize they're part of the problem and if we can talk more and get more to that group and raise the awareness there, I think we have a much larger population of advocates than we would know. It's just not easy to figure out exactly how.
1: Yeah. No, no, no. That's that's a great point. I wanted to jump into the next question, which was uh, persisting through your career, especially when you were chief business development officer, you said you were the only woman in the C-suite. How was that experience for you and you know you said you wanted to stay there for 6 months but ended up staying for 8 years.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Um how was that experience for me? It was many things. Um it was a startup, you know, that went through many stages, so you know, that's there's so much within that. And it's such a loaded question in some ways. I felt a responsibility to to make sure that I was more aware of some of these biases. Um, first of all, the the CEO is a friend of mine, and I knew him, and I knew his heart. I knew he's a good person, but he's human, and we all have blind spots and biases. And I felt like I had a uniquely um, a unique position in that because of our longstanding friendship. I could talk to him about these things if and when I saw them, and and that was a big lesson for me. In this was that I. I think anytime you witness any woman, every woman I know has witnessed moments, whether they're egregious and obvious or subtle, where you're in a meeting and a woman says something and no one acknowledges it. And 15 minutes later, some, a man says a very similar thing. And all of a sudden it's a great idea. There's a hundred different examples like that, right? We've all seen and heard that. And in that moment, I think it's really easy to get upset and then, um, to again, group whoever the the person is who has committed this into this, oh, they're part of the problem. And what I realized was that was one of the places that I really, really began to start approaching men and people differently who were making some of these missteps that were, were biased, were hurtful, were exclusionary, that they didn't even notice. And I started by giving them the benefit of the doubt. And taking them aside and being like, did you realize that when you said this, it was excluding the rest of the group? Did you realize that, you know, you know, Sarah had offered this earlier and you didn't think it was a good idea until Bob later, you know, whatever those things are. But I did it in a, um, a less embarrassing way, a less call them out way. And they were really appreciative, like nine times out of 10, they didn't realize they did it. They didn't want that to be the case. And they became more conscious of it the next time that they were in a meeting with those same people. So it was like small things like that that was actually making um, you know, incremental differences. Because what I don't want to do is that, that big group of people who I think aren't bad people but are unconscious, I don't want them to stop talking and stop putting things out there, being so overly careful that we're not having open lines of communication. We have to let people screw up a little bit give them a little leeway of the benefit of the doubt and then offer them you know, some feedback for awareness and let them course correct. If they course correct once they know, fantastic. Then we're all moving in the right direction. If they don't, that's different. Those people fall in, the, in that other category we were talking about. And that's like a, I know what I'm doing is promoting myself or others like me and hurting other people and I don't care. That's its own group. I don't have much tolerance or forgiveness for that. That to me is a... Um, like I said, I think I don't think that group's going to going to go that much longer. I do think that group is getting called out more and more.
1: Mm-hmm. As you were talking <clears throat> I had a question. Actually, I want to talk about your daughter, you and this is what women have um, go through a lot like when they go have kids. It's really hard for them to come back to work. What is that? And my experience has been different. You know, I I have three kids. I had my oldest, I went back in in eight six weeks, um, or eight weeks, and my twins, I was back in eight weeks. So my experience was very different. But also, you know, I'm the sole breadwinner of the family. My husband's a stay at home dad. Uh, I don't think I had a choice to stay home and bond with my kids. But I know that I'm in a minority, and uh, I had this. This woman at VMware who was, uh, I think she was a senior director when I was, I was an engineer with my, you know, when I had my first son, she had her first child as well. And she came back from maternity leave and I met her in the bathroom and she said, she said, Pujima, don't you think this is so hard coming back to work? And she took, I think she took four months off um, before she came back. So she had a really long time to bond with her child. And then a month later she quit and she was just this fantastic woman. You know, a grad student from Stanford had super, super high potential if she stayed in the workplace, but she decided to leave uh, for, you know, for all good reasons, I'm sure for her. But I find that women leave and they can't come back. And you talked a little bit about your experience, like taking a year off for your daughter. I just want to understand from you how that experience was coming back, you know, even during that process. Did you feel like you were supported? Were you overwhelmed? Did you feel like you had a place back in this world
0: sure so I think this doesn't get talked about enough um, and I'm sure that I'm sure there's a, there's a lot of people who think it gets overtalked they don't want to hear it especially people who don't necessarily have some who don't have kids and don't want to hear um, although plenty of my girlfriends who don't have kids are, are incredibly understanding and supportive but this is a tough one because I don't think there's there's no one way, you know, when I met you and, and we talked before I had uh, introduced you as the keynote speaker. And I, you told me that about your three kids. I thought amazing. Like what a powerful example for people who worry that they have to choose one or the other. And yet when you say what your story was, you clearly, even though you didn't have to choose, you know, your career or being a mom, that means you have had to make incredibly hard choices every day. Mm -hmm. right? Where your time is spent. And, you know, I know for me, like I said, I, I, I became much more particular about what I would be working on. Um, because it was just going to be too heart wrenching to be away from my daughter and be doing something that didn't matter for the world. But I also know that's of a certain privileged, you know, not everyone gets the choice. You got to do what you got to do. And, and part of this is because I waited, you know, very long to, to have kids I started later. So first and foremost, I don't think it's, I don't think there's an easy easy decision either way. I have friends who are stay-at-home moms who I know also wonder about their own career and what will it be like once their kids are older and then they're ready and now they've had multiple years out of the workforce. Um, So I don't think there's an easy answer to this. From my own experience, what was really critical to me, and I just think I got so lucky, is that um, the CEO of the company I'm with, Not Me Solutions, is a father of three. He was an employment lawyer for 15 years of his life and stepped away from a very lucrative you know, sure thing to do something he cared about, specifically because he has three kids and he knows they're about to go into the workforce, and he said, my gosh, and one of them, his youngest being a daughter. He's like, if these powerful, rich, famous women if it was so hard for them to come forward, what could it, must it be like for, you know, the everyday person? And so for him, part of the reason for creating this company is because he cares about actually the people and their livelihood and their fairness and their equality. So he knew immediately that I had a little girl that wasn't something I was going to hide. And he, he loves that. He asks how she's doing. We, he'll, he'll say to me, go, go, go to, you know, go, uh, I'm going to leave you alone for the weekend, you know, go have fun with, have fun with Aviana. That's my daughter. And, and so I'm, I'm lucky enough to be working with someone who is, puts their family first. I think that makes it much easier, right? He puts his family first and works second. Um, So he respects that I do that. I know that's not always the case. And I, and so I do think having support around you is, is ideal but again, it's, um, not everywhere is the same. Not everyone is the same. And I think it's a, I think it's kind of a, I kind of think it's a crime. I, about how many, how many people are, um, are having to choose, do have to choose between one or the other. When in actuality, I think a mom, like anybody who's been a parent, I'll say parent, I only know being a mom, but if you're a parent, You know how to multitask and get shit done better than anybody I've ever met. So to not think that that would be a group that when they come back into the workforce that you want on your team, I think is a huge miss. (laughs) Like it amazes me, actually. It amazes me in some ways. Um, I, I think it's one of the hardest jobs to do. And so I think it makes the work side of things easy in comparison in some ways.
1: Yeah, I had this uh, woman on my podcast. I have Her episode's not published yet, but she talked about, you know, she took like 17 years, uh, a break from her career. And in those 17 years, when she stayed home with her kids, she like did the hardest jobs, like volunteering at their schools, doing like really tough things. She put that all in her resume. And when she came back 15, 17 years later, she wouldn't get a job. Like they, no one would give her a job when she because she thought, oh, if I put this on my resume, all my experience, like organizing, doing all these things will get me something because this was hard stuff to do. She had to navigate certain things and she thought it was a plus, but she realized she wasn't getting a job. She she, She took it off her resume and then she got a job. Now, she doesn't think it's a coincidence. She just thinks that people didn't value what she was doing. Um, staying home with the kids. And this was not, you know, being part of the PTA, whatever. I mean, I don't do any of that, so I don't know how hard that is. My husband does a lot of that, and I know how much energy it sucks out of him. And uh, there are a lot of women who actually show a lot of leadership uh, qualities when they do some things like this.
0: And no one recognizes really, it. Yeah, well, I, to me, this goes into a uh, a topic that I am I feel so strongly about. And I think that we have a very... Old school, archaic way of hiring people. People are still looking at resumes for like a thoroughbred who has been from day one and worked their whole life up until this point that proves they can do every single thing they're about to do before they step into this job. And I get it. That seems obvious. However, To me, what I want to know, look, unless you're, if you're a doctor, if you're going to, if you're going to be a surgeon or something, I want to know you went to pre-med. I want to know you've done all like, right. There's some things that are unique to, Mm -hmm. to that profession, but I want to know that someone knows how to succeed no matter what they're thrown into. So to me, I love that. I love hearing like the personal stories of that's typically where people learn their grit and where they're really strong anyway. And, and I also think that's part of people learning within the interview how to present the fact that their talents in one way are completely transferable to be successful into another. So I think that's a a two-edged sword. I think the the way of hiring from the hiring side is old school. And I think people going into interviews and I've often seen um, females in particular interview in a different way. When I was a startup, I probably interviewed hundreds of people. And I, I think that there is a innate ease for a lot of men to tell you exactly what they're good at and why they would be good for that job, even if they've never done it before. Whereas uh, some women will, you know, they'll they'll tell you what they've done um, with a humility that's admirable, but sometimes so understating that they don't realize that the guy who just came in the interview before or after was more powerful in their conviction about why they deserved it. And so I think a lot of this goes into, like, women's innate... Um, the need for women to innately realize they deserve, they deserve these roles and they deserve these opportunities because they can do it even if they haven't done that exact thing before.
1: That's a great point. But at the same time, if women do sound confident, it's a double-edged sword. Mm. Because then Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, she's so cocky, so overconfident. It's Mm. almost like it's not feminine. You know what I mean? Because we have this mm, and, a, a masculine way to do, I mean, a feminine yes. way to do,
0: to be. That to me, so when you say that to me, this this hits on the nail on the head. I think this is what it's much more about um, in terms of our future. I think the, what's the best leadership of our future, I don't care the, as much about the gender that's standing in that role. I care about whoever it is being uh, much more not just accepting, accepting, encouraging, and pulling from both their masculine and their feminine. Because Uh men have it and women have it. Yes, And if we valued and honored both of those, to me, that's where everything shifts and changes. And I think it'll become less about who's at the top and who's at the top will naturally rise to the top. But as, as a culture, yes, we have we have especially in the roles of leadership in you know we have a history of of overvaluing the masculine and leadership side but I think that that's one of the biggest waves happening i see I see and I feel the value of the feminine energy moving forward it's not equal yet no there's a reason why you you know you're doing this podcast and we're having this conversation but I think the momentum is trending in that direction and I think that could be the big shift
1: yeah. I wanted to go back to just the partnership at home. Right now, you don't have 50-50 partnership. I I will admit there's no 50-50 in my household either. Um, I'm working all the time. My husband's with the kids. Our energy is very different and I get a lot of uh, flack for it from my family, from my friends or whoever, right? Like they're just like, oh, Pratima, you know, they, I keep g- getting questioned for running male energy or being, <laughs> you know, like the man of the house in some sense because I'm working and he's at home. Uh, But they wouldn't question a man, right? Like if if it was reversed, they wouldn't be asked, telling my husband, like, how can you stay out? And how can, you know, why is your wife with the kids all the time? Or why is she cooking all the time and cleaning all the time? Like no one would question that. Uh, But I get questioned a lot. Like, you know. So how do we get to 50 50 partnership. The way I support my husband is I give him whatever he needs, right? Like if he needs cleaning, you know, cooking, cutting vegetables, washing, sorting, laundry, I support him with outside help Mm -hmm. and we make it work that way. Uh, but a lot of households are not like that. Um, you know, I don't put in the work, but I get people to put in the work to support him. (laughs) And so I feel less guilty about it because I go away thinking, Oh, he's got support. He's, I've taken care of it. They're all good. And so I can go off and try to change the world. But we need to get a 50-50 partnership. And this, again, ties to millennials. Like you talked about how I feel like millennials are demanding that change. I feel like the older generation screwed us. We're the sandwich generation. We're trying to fix everything. And the millennial generation is basically coming in and saying, it's like literally like, what the fuck? like, why do I have to live in this environment? I'm demanding change. I want 50-50 at home and I want all that. So I'm seeing some of that. But what about the sandwich generation, this generation that I come from?
0: Well, I, I, I guess I have to respectfully disagree with the fact that 50-50 is the goal. I, I think I get it in its, um, I get it philosophically and I'm a big i'm I'm very much into yoga, and I think I was always talking about it's oh it's about balance, it's that's about balance and then I just started to realize that like fifty fifty almost never happens, and if it does, it's a fleeting moment, right There'll be a moment, a day, a week where there's actually fifty percent is being done by each of you, or um balance is actually struck. I feel like it's a it's a bit more of a moving target, but I know philosophically what you're talking about, and i I think that. I don't think there's one way. I know, I know, I know with my husband, he is incredibly entrepreneurial way. And for his first 2 years of our daughter's life, I was much more I was I was hands-on every single day, right? And now now that I'm stepping back into this, he and I are going through this shift. I mean, he and I, you know, he's like, "Whoa, when you're on the road," and I'm like, and he'll tell me how hard something was, and I'm thinking, "Oh, believe me, I know. I was doing that every day." Um, and yet that's where I don't have the answers to that. I'm like a work in progress on that. I have a young child, an entrepreneurial husband. We both want careers and we both want to make sure that we raise a good, global, kind human being. So we're figuring that out. But I think, like you said, it's, it's whatever each person has, whatever their, whatever their dream is, whatever they're like, this is what I need to do to feel fulfilled. And you each have that. And then you have this gap of everything else that has to get done in between. And I think you both just figure out who can who can more easily fill that gap with whatever their resources are, whether it be money, whether it be time, whether it be skill. And you know, I don't know if there's a an equation for it. I, I would that would be great if there were. That would make it so much easier.
1: <laughs> no, but you know, but women um, tend to do all the household work, right? So it becomes very unfair, and. So there's no 50-50 there in the sense that the woman doesn't get the support. That's why women don't come back to the workforce. It's it's pretty much when when a couple has a child, it becomes her child. It's never their child. Um, and also the way organizations are set up. You know, before we just give a week paternity to the men, which is terrible. And now we're doing 18 weeks and yeah. not everyone's caught up caught on to that. But uh, There are so many women, a big chunk of women, and we forget this pipeline of women that have left the workforce because of various reasons. And the biggest reason is they've gone and had children and they can't come back because they don't have that support at home. And so I'm saying is like they need that support. They need that that partnership. It has to be a partnership. It has to be something like you said, Your both your careers are important. Like your career is important. Your husband's career is important. and You guys are making it work out. But in most families, it's not that case. Uh, One person's career is more important than the other person's career. So in my household, my career is more important than my husband's, but that's the choice he made. And so we're comfortable with that choice, right? But if he comes back tomorrow and says, my career is important, I have to figure out a way to support him. And I will. Uh, We're just not there yet. But I'm just saying that even if the the other person comes back and saying, hey, my career is important, first is having that conversation. A lot of people don't have that conversation. Perhaps my husband's not having that conversation either. Maybe I should ask him. But, you know, um, people are afraid to have that conversation and it takes a lot of courage to have that conversation. When they do have the conversation, they don't get that support.
0: No, and I think um, I was just talking to girlfriends the other day where I was talking about the fact that I think how... Look, I love I love movies and I'm like a hopeless romantic. And I used to be at least I used to watch these movies and, you know, throw myself vicariously into them. And it was so dreamy. And then I got married and I love (laughs) my husband. I love my daughter. I love our family. However, what a bunch of bull in terms of (laughs) <laughs> what they make it sound like and what it's going to be like. And look, in many ways, it's way better than a movie could ever say. But in other other ways, it's so much more practical that that's why they don't put it in the movies. What a, like uh, often what makes a marriage work is the pra- figuring out how to make the boring, practical things work. So, yeah, that wouldn't be an exciting movie. So we're not going to put that in there. But I have said to my girlfriends who are single, let me tell you something. One of the most important things to me when I was dating was if a man could dance. Now I did. I, my husband cannot dance. Well, I hope he doesn't (laughs) listen to this, but he should know that he cannot dance well. But worse than that is that it was one of my highest priorities, right? Thank God. It's what I made my decision on. So I tell my like single friends, I'm like, let me tell you, particularly if you want to have a family like children helpful, a helpful partner is the sexiest partner, not in the you know, traditional romantic way, but in the what's going to get you through and keep you both like working towards something. And I don't, I just, I can't even think of a movie where I'm like, Oh, remember that guy? He was so hot. Cause he was so helpful. Like, no, it wasn't even part of the script, but in married life with children, you need a partner who is helpful. So I looked out. My husband is one of the most helpful people I know, but it's that's not even being talked about. So, so part <laughs> of it to me is also the decisions we're making and why um, on on our partners, like who that is uh, that we choose in in both our personal relationships at home as well as work or anywhere else. I mean, what makes real partnerships work? And I, I don't know if we all go in with um, super realistic expectations.
1: Yeah, uh, I know Jeff Bezos said something like he still does dishes at home. It's probably, I think he said it was like one of the sexiest things he does. Like, you know. Yeah.
0: Or you know, something like that. Like at the end of the day, he's washing dishes. I think. Um, I think that's Gates. Is that because I know Bezos and his yeah. wife just splits. So maybe it wasn't sexy enough, but I think. Yeah, but I know. What you,
1: it's <laughs> no, I, I read about Bezos, but I oh, know. I know okay. Gates. Apparently, Bill, Bill Gates does dishes, dishes too.
0: But they realize just to be helpful is yeah. is what your partner needs to feel supported. To feel supported.
1: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of men coming out, like you know, Mark Zuckerberg coming out and saying, "I'm going to take." 30 days off to be with my child, I think really helped men feel it's almost like men needed permission <laughs> in yeah. some sense. They kind of need permission to do dishes as well. So I think if you have these rich, powerful men coming out and saying, Hey, you know what? I'm taking 30 days off or I do dishes at home. Maybe, you know, it's hopeful. It's it's all good. I like that.
0: Yeah. But back to the, the, the what you said to start it off, there is definitely a double standard in this realm by far, because when I think of any time, any man I've ever worked with, his wife was pregnant. He couldn't wait till the day that he could share the news that, you know, everything they were past the first trimester, it was safe and they could share. And there was nothing but congratulatory across the office. However, I know many women who will keep that to themselves as long as possible for fear of having their accounts taken away what's this going to mean not being up for the opportunity all those things and the same thing right i mean you're talking about a, a couple they're they the two of them are having a child and they could both go back to work the next day and and share the news and the and it's just completely different in terms of what crosses a woman's mind of if i am to share this what does this mean for me whereas it's all celebratory for a mm-hmm. guy
1: yeah yeah i wanted to go back to this one thing you talked about when you were in the investment management space, as to how you pull people aside and try to eradicate some of the bias that they were holding, which was all unconscious, and in some sense, those were interventions. I I kind of see them as interventions because you're really helping people get this aha moment. Um, so, what do you think about interventions in general for for girls? Uh, because I find that these girls need uh, yeah, to, I think you know you need to intervene um... at every point. So, what what's your thought on that?
0: So the, the example I gave you was actually when I was in the digital media space, when I was in investment management, I was so young and one of the few females, I didn't feel that was, I I didn't, when I saw things, I didn't ever pull someone aside um, and say anything. That's not true. I had one, my first boss, I didn't realize what an amazing boss he was because he was my first boss. So I had nothing to compare him to, but he really wanted for my growth. And he and I had a very open dialogue and I was able to. He had said something one time that I said, do you you realize that that would be um," he was much older and he said he was talking about a woman and he said, oh, she's oriental. And he went on and I said, hey, do you do realize that, you know, a a more proper and respectful term would be Asian and, you know, oriental is what you use for a rug. And he said, oh, my goodness, when I grew up, he said there was a much worse word. I thought I was using the nicest one. So he is somebody who I could talk to like that, and again, a great example of somebody who didn't even realize that what mm-hmm. he was saying wasn't okay. Um, but for the most part, in investment management, I was young in my career, and I think that's when a lot of us see and experience the most of it and and it it wasn't quote unquote my place to pull someone aside. Um, it was when I moved up later when, when I was in tweet and on the digital media side that I had those conversations but But in terms of the intervention question, you know, I think people need to be. I don't think, I think people need to be willing to hear it. And I kind of grew up a very, I was very tomboyish. I was very, I had a lot of my masculine energy, um, through sports, through watching my dad coach and all of those things. And I, I often would let people know my opinion without it being asked. And I thought that that was, I thought that was strong. I thought that was like, I thought that was the way. But actually, as I've gotten older, what I've realized is that um, people need to be open and want to hear something like that. Um, and so I started to ask before I give, I'll say, are you open to feedback? Can I share something that I saw here? And that usually lets people kind of take a second, reflect and decide if they really want to hear, you know, what your thoughts are on what you saw. Um, and I think it helps people be a little bit less defensive and a little bit more open to, to what you're about to say. But When I was at the digital media company, Urban Daddy, um, there would be, you know, we had some incredibly creative, talented people, um, and many of them women. Uh, Some of our best, absolutely, were women. And yet, uh, I would see some of them come in and, you know, kind of sit back at the table, wait uh, for for other people's opinions to go first. And then there was one, God, there was one girl, she's, she was so creative and I thought so much more talented than she knew she was. And she would play with her hair and she would speak quietly, almost coyly. And I finally started, um, like sitting with her and saying, are you open to feedback? And telling her like, your ideas are incredible, but I need you to deliver them in a way that shows that you know that they are incredible. And I want you to, if you, you know, should say, oh, I didn't even realize I was playing with my hair. I'd say, pull it back and put it in a ponytail. Then pull it somewhere where you're not going to, I want you to present yourself with the same gravitas as your ideas are because they are strong. But if you don't have conviction in them, it's going to be very hard for someone else to have conviction in them. Mm-hmm. So often it's little things like that, where I'll just you know and you see that i think it's a very common thing we see some of the greatness in people that they don't see in themselves and yes you can advocate for people to you know push for their promotion or push for them or pull them along to something but i would rather them push for it and them show conviction in it and them go ask for it and and so to me that's the that's the thing that when i had the moments and the opportunity um and i saw that in people and they were open to the feedback, um, that mattered to me and I would share it and, and, and I'd love seeing them just in an, in a follow-up meeting, do something a little bit differently that showed they were really stepping into their own, raising their own awareness and, and confidence.
1: No, oh, that's fantastic. I mean, that's the kind of intervention women need. But how often do pe- people actually feel empowered to make that intervention? Because a lot of people think, oh, it's not my business, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so I, I want my listeners to know that, hey, you know what, you're empowered. Like if you find some high potential person doing something like you said, is like talking to them and saying, hey, you know, can I give you some feedback? And then having that conversation. And people also need to realize that feedback is a gift. Oh, my God. It's such a
0: yes. gift. Yes, <laughs> it is a gift because you know, you know that's the case. You're so busy. The only time you're going to stop and do that is because you do care. So it is, it's, I think that's a big thing too. If people could, could let go of that first instinct being defensive or you're criticizing me and instead being like, wow, you're taking your time with me. You mm-hmm. must see something in me if you're going to take your time, which we all know is a super valuable, you know, asset. So I agree. Yeah. yeah.
1: So my last question, because we're running out of time, I just wanted to ask you about just bringing men into this conversation. And earlier on, I know you talked about, you know, a lot of men who supported your career Do you want to talk a little bit more about it? Because I feel like, you know, there's a revolution brewing, like you said, like things are changing, moving in the right direction. But still, when it comes to diversity and inclusion, men kind of shut, shut, shut down. They're not part of the conversation. So how do we get them to be comfortable and get them into this conversation so we can actually create change? Because we can get to 50-50. My podcast is 50-50. I know you're skeptical about it. But for us Mm -hmm. to get to that, like how do we need men? be part of this conversation.
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, I think this goes into like a very, um, almost, almost like what a therapist would say in terms of, you know, people don't get into real conversation until they feel like they're in a safe space. And I think right Mm -hmm. now, a lot of men with good intention are consciously being quiet because they are scared to misstep. They are scared to say something wrong when they didn't intend it that way. And that's where I think we all need to have a little bit more compassion and a little bit more allowance. And I know this is, I feel right now is the time of intolerance and I'm like, no, I think we need a little bit more compassion and a little bit more um, space for people to misstep. And in order for us to have the conversation, that's about course correction, you know, going back to what I said before. So part of it is, yes, if you see something if you see something that's not right, it is, you know, at NAMI Solutions, we, we want to do your part. We talked about taglines forever, and we were like, no, do your part, because every person can play a role in this. Every person, right, right now in this world can play a role in this. And so in, in doing your part, if I see something that shouldn't be, I can either walk away and say it's not my business and miss that opportunity. I can maybe take that chance to have a potentially uncomfortable conversation and say to somebody, hey, are you open to, to some feedback about how what you said you know, was received? And it, again, give them the benefit of the doubt. I think we are so quick to chastise people and put them in the bucket of, oh, see, they're just yet another man who doesn't care or doesn't know. Those are two different things. Doesn't know and doesn't care. If you don't care, yes, I've got an issue with you. But if you just don't know what you're doing or what you're not doing that could be helpful, Then someone else raising it, raising your awareness to that in a way that's a bit more um, gentle, a bit more giving you the benefit of the doubt that you're a good person and had you realized it, maybe you would do it this way. I think people will more so get on the bus of uh, moving in the right direction. I think people will more so continue talking and continue the conversation because what I don't want is people to just stop talking. That's not going to change people's minds. That means they're just thinking and feeling the same thing. They're just not willing to talk about it because they don't want to get chastised. So I think we need to start from a place of, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to share with you what I saw and heard. And then I'm going to hope that in that next time, you'll have a little bit more awareness and try and do it in a different way. I think that that approach might have a little bit more impact than some of, of what I'm seeing today.
1: That's amazing. Thank you so much, Libora. And this was a fantastic conversation.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me and for doing this, um, because I'm a big believer that just the conversation itself is huge for awareness. And I think things are moving in the right right direction. So thanks for being such a catalyst in that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Getting to Fifty Fifty. If you enjoyed the show, spread the word by visiting www.pratimaraugluckman.com. After listening to the podcast, I hope you feel empowered to make a difference in your organization and communities. You have the power to change the world. Thanks again and see you next time.